Yeah, so the new year is a time when we look back on what we've lived through, and then we look forward to what we hope will be a brighter and better year. Even if we've had a good year, we consider the new year as an opportunity to improve upon the last. <clears throat> <I've, clears throat> I'm the type of person who rolls his eyes when somebody tells me, like, oh, you know, like, 2016 was terrible. I'm waiting for 2017. It's going to be so much better. Because I've just felt like every year has its ups and downs. Like, what distinguishes one year from the other? But I'll have to say that this year I didn't feel that way. <laughs> 2017 has been a crazy year, unlike anything that I remember. And there are names from 2017 that we'll never forget, like Harvey or Irma, Maria, Weinstein, Moore, Lauer. There are places that, when mentioned, will swirl up pain, compassion, and even anger, like Charlottesville, Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs. I could go on and on naming like this when it comes to this past year. So when the world around us is looking back and looking forward, how are we as a people of God supposed to process a year in the life? Or how are we supposed to look forward to the next year? Well, one thing we can do is pray. We can talk to God. And for the Christian, praying is a unique experience. It's more than just sending good thoughts over Facebook or sending good vibes. It's communication with God that aligns us to his purpose. So we're going to see this in what's been labeled as the Lord's Prayer. This prayer shows up in the Bible once when Jesus is teaching a larger crowd during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and then it also shows up in Luke when his disciples ask him to teach them how to pray. So we're going to go with the longer form of the prayer, which is in Matthew. So we'll be using Matthew 6, 7 through 15 as our text today. We're going to see five facets of this prayer that align us with God. This will be on the shorter side, this sermon, because we're going to take some time to pray after. And we're going to put what we've learned into practice and actually implement the prayer that we're, that we're reading. So look with me first at the first part of the verse, at verse 9. We'll have it up on the screen. The first facet we see is paternity. Our Father are the first two words of that prayer. So Jesus is teaching us to pray to God as our Father. We're addressing God as a family member, and a very particular one. So much is wrapped up in these two words. We could spend all day talking about the implications, but I only have about two minutes for each point here, so you're going to get the aerial view. The first thing it signifies is familial acceptance. How do we know we've been accepted? Through Jesus. Through Jesus, we've been accepted as children, where once we were enemies of God. The Bible says in John 1-2 that to all who received Jesus, he gave them the right to be called children of God. So through Jesus, we pray to God as our Father. Now what does it mean that he's our Father? What should that mean to us? Well, if you think about a good father, a good father is loving. A good father provides for his children. He seeks their good. He protects them. Jesus himself says in chapter 7 of Matthew that even not-so-good fathers know how to give good gifts. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So we approach God knowing that he's our gracious and loving Father, and he desires our good. So last point on paternity for the Lord's Prayer. When we're reading the Bible... We really have to pay attention to pronouns. I think a lot of the time we see 
we, we just miss the plural pronouns of the Bible, and we think mostly about ourselves and not the fact that there's a plurality going on here. So when Jesus says, Father, the pronoun that he uses before that is our, our Father. He doesn't tell us that we should pray, my Father, but our Father. So this prayer, while it could certainly be used by the individual, is laid out as a corporate prayer, a prayer of God's children. Those who through Jesus have gained access to the Father and all God's children are family. When we pray together on Sunday, we're praying together as a family, praying to our Father. That's what we just did. And this doesn't have to be limited to Sundays. When you pray to your Father in heaven who's joined you as family to the church, devote some time and some space in your heart to pray as us and not just me. So Jesus begins with our Father in heaven, and heaven gets us into that next facet of this prayer, which is perfection. We li- do we live in a perfect world? I'll just ask you that. No, yeah. Do you know how teachers say there's no such thing as a stupid question? I think that one actually probably qualifies as a stupid question, because our world is so obviously imperfect. More than imperfect, it's corrupt. Just look at some of the things I listed out at the beginning of the sermon. Disasters driven by humanity and nature. They, they both abound. We can't get away from them. Getting down to a more micro level, we could ask, is anyone here perfect? That's another bad question. Because what's true about our world is true about us. And it's from this vantage point that we pray this prayer, which explains this next portion of the text. Look with me back, beginning at Matthew 6, 9. So he says, Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we live in a, in a world where God's name isn't hallowed. It's not honored as holy. A world that's vastly different from the kingdom of God. A world where we need intervention. A world where we need God to exercise his good and gracious will. We need God to right the wrongs, to bring justice, and ultimately to bring peace. Because if there's one thing that sums it all up, that sums up God's reign on this earth, it would be peace. The result of God's perfection overcoming our corruption is perfect peace, the shalom of God. And we look forward to the day when he'll wipe away our tears and say, it's done. When we see the lion lay down with the lamb and there's no more pain, no more tears. But we also live here and now and God isn't beyond intervening in our world today. God has been intervening from the beginning, and he'll be intervening all the way through the end. Every wrong won't be set right until the return of Jesus, but we're not left alone in the meantime. So God acts on behalf of his people according to his will. So we should pray that his will would be done today. That we see previews and glimpses of this beautiful kingdom that's supposed to come, this peace that's supposed to come to the earth. And we do see those things. We need the perfection of God to penetrate our corrupt world. So we ask that he would divert storms, and we ask that he would heal marriages, that he would heal loved ones. Of course, our desire is to see his kingdom come in full, to experience the full restoration of the earth and the peace that comes with his perfect and unrestrained will. This is what we talked about for the last four weeks when we went through our Advent series, when we were talking about waiting for God. Even so, We're encouraged by Jesus to pray for our day-to-day needs, to pray for God's provision. Look with me at verse 11. It'll be on the screen. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Now, daily bread here sums up our essential physical needs for day-to-day life. Jesus is teaching that we should pray for our needs. And it's not a selfish thing to come to God with our needs. And God desires to give us what we need. But I will point out that it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't start the prayer with this, even though it's so often where we start. Prayer is often viewed simply as coming to God with our needs. And it's not less than that, but it's definitely more. Notice how Jesus first takes us through aligning ourselves with God, our Father, who he is and what he's doing. All from a realistic perspective of where we are and who we are. So this request for daily bread from the believer aligned with who God is and what he's doing, it can't be a selfish prayer. This is saying, God, give me what I need to participate in this mission. Give me what I need to be light. Give me what I need to make your name hallowed in places where it's not honored as holy. Sustain me. Supply me. And this goes beyond bread. It goes for any need. The main idea here is that we come to God with our needs, the ones that pertain to our lives here and now, and that we do so as God's children, aligned with who he is and what he's doing, hoping in the promise of his coming kingdom. So God cares about your day-to-day life. He cares about the little things, and he doesn't miss a beat. So we pray to a paternal, loving God for his perfection to pierce through our corrupt world and for his provision as we live daily in the brokenness. But because we also perpetuate the brokenness of our world, we pray for his pardon. And that's the next part of this uh, passage that we're going to look at in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, there's not one of us who hasn't helped perpetuate the world's brokenness. We do it when we lie. We do it when we hate. We do it when we lust or when we act on any sinful impulse that we have. We've rejoiced when people have been met with misfortune, if we haven't liked them or we've erroneously believed in some kind of karmic justice. We've also been sad and jealous when good things happen to those people for the same reasons. I'm not saying that sin is all that we are, but it's certainly part of us. And if we deny it, we're worse off. Because in 1 John 1 through 9, I mean 1 9, John says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But read, uh, listen closely here. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, the Bible doesn't advocate for a constant navel-gazing guilt. But at the same time, to deny that we sin is to call God a liar. It's plain and simple. So maybe one of the examples doesn't, doesn't fit with you. Maybe you're saying, that's just not me. But if that is you, I encourage you to do some real soul-searching. So this part of the prayer has two parts. Forgive us as we forgive others is the second part those indebted to us, those who have wronged us, offended us, those who have cheated us, you name it. To receive the forgiveness of God is to receive the freedom to forgive others. To know the grace of God is to have grace for others. There's a lot that could be said about forgiveness, and there's a lot of little side notes that that maybe certain people should hear, like forgiveness doesn't mean trust necessarily. If we're coming from an abusive situation or we're in a situation where we could be harmed, Forgiveness is not the same as trusting that person if you forgive them. 
but it is a recognition that God has forgiven our debts. And as his children, we should do likewise. We can't really pray this prayer with sincerity if we're held hostage by rage, revenge, and hatred. Because we know God set aside those things when Jesus died on the cross for us. In the same way, and in humble awareness of our own debts, we strive to forgive in the way that we've been forgiven. If you want to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, forgive someone. If you want to see expressions of God's kingdom on earth, forgive someone. If you want to see God's name hallowed, honored as holy, forgive someone who's wronged you. We're in an unforgiving world. And forgiveness is so contrary to the world around us that it can't help but reveal God when we forgive someone. All right, so here's our fifth and last facet of this prayer for protection. Again, because we recognize that we're prone to wander in sin, we pray that God would give us spiritual protection. Jesus puts it like this as he closes the prayer in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus teaches us to pray for leadership away from temptation and for deliverance from evil. Sometimes this is translated as the evil one, which isn't contradictory, but it does add some helpful specificity about what we're talking about. So as we progress through this world, we'll encounter all sorts of temptation. And one of those things that we should pray is that God would not lead us into that temptation. Now we know God doesn't tempt us to do evil, but at the same time, following God's lead doesn't mean we'll never be led through areas of temptation. We'd have to leave the world entirely to avoid that. But again, the petition here is asking for some of God's perfection to break through. Spare us the things that tempt us to stray from our relationship with you. Spare us the dark times when we're tested to the point of surrender. You see, the believer who's aligned with who God is and what he's doing wants his name to be hallowed. He or she doesn't want to act contrary to the ways of God. We've seen how people have defamed God when his people act sinfully and corruptly. We don't want to contribute to the brokenness of the world. We want to show people who God is. And ultimately, we want to be delivered from evil, from the evil one, Satan, who hates God and his children, who would destroy us if we could. As with every facet of this prayer, there's a temporal and terminal application. There's something for now, and there's hope for later. Now and then, present and future, circumstantial and consummative. We want that once and for all deliverance. So this prayer has rightly been labeled Jesus' message of the kingdom of God in prayer form. We pray to a paternal, loving God for his perfection to pierce through our broken world, that he would provide for us daily as we live among the brokenness, that he would pardon us for the part that we play in the brokenness, and lastly, that he would protect us from the temptation to stray from him and for ultimate deliverance from the enemy who seeks to destroy us. We align ourselves with who God is, what he's doing, and what he has done. And we seek the means to take part in his glorious mission to restore the earth to everlasting peace. Now, we have to know who's actually telling us about this prayer. It's Jesus. And, and something about Jesus is that we need to know is that he's the son of God, which we already know. He's a tangible picture of God's perfection on earth. 
a glimpse of the kingdom to come, the living, breathing evidence of God's grace and forgiveness. We pray that God would not lead us into temptation, but for us, he was led through temptation with unwavering faith. We pray, deliver us from evil, but for our sin, he was delivered into evil hands that nailed him to the cross. But death could not hold him. He was raised to life, and today he sits beside our Father in heaven. When we pray, your kingdom come, we look forward to our own resurrection, to the day when Jesus comes and establishes perfect peace. Would you pray the Lord's Prayer with me? The words will be on the screen if we could go back to Matthew 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.